Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and thanks for listening to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. This is David Gottlieb. In Unbinding Isaac, the Significance of the Akedah for Modern Jewish Thought, Aaron Kohler provides a clear and contemporary perspective on one of the most well-known and inscrutable texts texts in Torah, the Akedah, the Binding of Isaac. By plumbing the depths of commentaries both ancient and modern, Kohler finds evidence for the view that one's own religious devotion cannot take precedence over the welfare of others. Through deep engagement with the thinking of rabbinic commentaries, modern philosophers, and many in between, Kohler helps us gain new understanding into the roles that the Akedah has played and the roles it must now play in Jewish thought and theology. Aaron Kohler is professor of Near Eastern and Jewish Studies at Yeshiva University, and he joins me today to talk about his book, Unbinding Isaac. Professor Kohler, thank you so much for being here. It's really an honor, David. I'm, I'm actually very happy to be here. I listen to the New Books Network all the time. And uh, back in the old days, when I used to commute to places like work, um, <laughs> I would listen to podcasts back and forth. And earlier this year, heard interview with you about your book on this topic. So it's it's a distinct honor to have you uh, now interviewing me about it. Thank you very much. And I, I, I hope someday I can write a book and have you return the favor. <laughs> I would look forward <laughs> to it. Okay. Um, first, I want to ask you, what prompted your interest in the Akedah as the subject of a book? And how did you come to write this particular book? So, so probably like most books, there are different points of origin here. Uh, I teach a a range of different things at Yeshiva University, including classes on uh, the Hebrew Bible as a text and also the interpretive history of the Hebrew Bible. And I spent a couple of semesters using the Akedah, the the story of Genesis 22, as a text through a lens through which we can see the history of biblical interpretation. Because Everyone in the last you know, 2,200 years or so who has interpreted anything in the Bible has something to say about the story of the binding of Isaac. Yes. And that's, you know, it's great because we can talk about early Christian readings and how the groundwork for them were laid by early Jewish writings, but then how Jews responded to the Christian writings and how the Quran tells a story in an interesting way that draws on earlier traditions. So there's like a whole bunch of, of different things that just make it a great subject for the class. So I taught it a couple of times, um, but you know I think probably like most people, I never actually thought about writing it up. Um, but there was a, an episode about, I guess about six years ago or so, uh, there was a sort of certainly strange and, and um, I think by some accounts incendiary ad uh, placed by an organization in the name of Elie Wiesel uh, that ran in some newspapers, I think it was in the New York Times, that said, you know, the Jews gave up child sacrifice thousands of years ago. This is the story of the binding of Isaac of the Akedah in Genesis 22. Now Hamas has to give up child sacrifice. It's true they're thousands of years behind, but it's time to do it. 
And I was like, whoa, okay, this is crazy. And, mm -hmm. you know, a number of, of my colleagues in, in biblical studies um, wrote all sorts of opinion pieces and uh, various commentaries on it that pointed out you know, a lot of different uh, uh, aspects of this ad that were like, yeah, at least problematic or more, more right. complicated than they yeah. uh, seem to be. Um, but not so much the specifics of the ad, but the whole discussion of it sort of led me to realize that that this text, maybe even more than a lot of other texts, like actually matters in a way that it, it resonates today. Right. So Currently matters. And of course, right? yeah. And one of the things that um, that you talk about in the book that I that you may be leading toward here is the idea that the 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 general perception sort of abroad in the land that the Akedah is a um, definitive rejection of child sacrifice. Right. So I, I, I'm actually very sympathetic to that line. And, you know, for, for that reason, I, I didn't have like a knee jerk reaction um, against this ad. I had other knee jerk reactions against the ad, but not, not about the, that, that particular line. But, you know, I think, I think, uh, you know, my training is in philology and your Eastern studies, and I was sort of less attuned to the ways in which texts continue to resonate. I don't want to say, I don't want to say in an, an authoritative way in the sense that, you know, the text says something and therefore people do something, but, but in a sense that it provides lenses for people to think about things, that it, it, uh, it gives vocabulary for people to process what's going on around them. And therefore, it does actually color the way people see the world. And um, people who take text seriously uh, are, in fact, affected by those texts. You know, I, if I, <laughs> this is going to uh, sound ironic, but if I had read your book before I wrote my book, uh, and your book has the the, the subtitle about the, the story and the formation of Jewish cultural memory. Mm -hmm. um, so I think if I had read that earlier, I might have been attuned to this a decade ago. And this, this episode wouldn't have come as, as such a uh, sort of surprise to me. Uh -huh. um, but it did. And it made me think that this is actually a text. I had had some ideas through teaching of, of what the text did and didn't mean. And in particular, I was sort of down on, on, uh, on one particular modern approach to the story. Um, but, but it was only once I realized that like people actually talk about it in a sense that, that presupposes that it matters what the text means that I thought like, it might be actually worth trying to put this down on paper and trying to put out an argument against one interpretation and for a different one. And I'm, I'm guessing, um, uh, that that interpretation is the one, the very influential one propounded by the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. I wanted to ask you, um, about that part of your book, because the first part of your book focuses on his very influential reading. I'm wondering if you can tell us why you chose to focus on his reading and about how influential Kierkegaard's reading of the Akedah actually is to modern Jewish theology. Right. So I, I, I realized at some point that I probably should have done something like a sociological survey, you know, either qualitative or quantitative, to actually have data on what people think about Genesis 22. Mm -hmm. uh, if you, sort of, you, know, you know, go into a, a church or a synagogue of, of any stripe and say like, Binding of Isaac, what a crazy story. What do you think of it? Right. Um, so I probably should have actually gotten some data because I think that that actually would have been useful. I guess I still could. But um, uh, but my, my reading of the sources 
made me think that there were sort of two dominant views in modern Jewish thought. Uh, one took from Kierkegaard. So Kierkegaard, um, who, as you said, you know, lives almost 200 years ago in, in Copenhagen, uh, and he argues, I think, you know, the, the sort of phrases that he uses have become quite famous. Uh, he argues that Abraham is a knight of faith yes. and that the and that the story uh, argues for a teleological suspension of the ethical. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he argued this in Danish. So I confess that I don't know Danish. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. I'm guessing that the Danish is not simpler than the English, but um, but I haven't actually checked. Yeah. Um, but his, the truth is, his his book, Fear and Trembling, is really remarkable reading, uh, just in terms of religious thought. I mean, it's it's written through a pseudonym, so it's written through an alter ego of Kierkegaard's named John the Silent, Johannes de Silentio. But the book is very compelling, uh, a, a portrait of someone who's really struggling with what it means to be a person of profound faith, or someone who strives to be a person of profound faith, in a modern world that really doesn't have a lot, have a lot of room for the individual and doesn't have a lot of room for sort of idiosyncratic beliefs, um, and instead wants a sort of homogenized civil society. Which is the one that he's living in, really. Yeah, right? absolutely. I mean, yeah. In part, it's sort of a, a commentary against the stale uh, Protestantism that he saw around him. Right, exactly, exactly. And, and you know, I, I tried to get into a little bit of the sort of contextual, like sort of social intellectual history that led him to write his book. And he's sort of terrified by Hegel, who's talking about people as just sort of, you know, basically just bit players in these broad historical changes. Um, but there's also there's also clearly a sort of psychological, um, personal component to his own his own uh, being in the world. You know, he yes. I think very famously uh, says he can't get married. Um, he breaks off his engagement with a, another uh, Copenhagen. Uh, bourgeois young lady, Regina Olsen. And he's, you know, he, he writes to her that he, because of his melancholy character, he'd be a bad husband. Uh, but it's also clear that he's sort of terrified by the idea of reducing himself to being part of the lives of other people. Like, if I'm a husband and a father, then like, who am I? And that's actually, I think, a profound question. I mean, that's, that's not limited to like early 19th century Danish uh, uh, thought. Um, you know, I think that's in, in a lot of ways he gets on, uh, he hits on some really profound questions about human nature and individualism. But you're absolutely right that he was terrified by the sort of stale, what he saw as a stale church, um, uh, you know, this Protestant Protestantism in, in Denmark. In another book of his, he has a character who says that he's worried that he's not really a Christian. And his wife says to him, well, I don't understand. What else could you be? You're you're Danish. You're not a Jew. You're not a Muslim. She actually says Mohammedan, mm-hmm. uh, you know, good 19th century. What else Carlin. is there? Right. Uh, exactly. Like, what else could you be? Like, you know, by definition, you're a Christian. And he's like, no, 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 that's not what a Christian is. Like, I think about the church fathers. I think about Christ himself. And like, what's a Christian? A Christian is someone who's like, you know, I'm going to spend years in the desert trying to find faith or I'm literally willing to die on the cross for my faith. And like, you're telling me I'm a Christian because I happen to be born into Copenhagen at like the right time and place. And that's all I have to do. So like check a box. Now I'm a Christian. He's like, that's that's really a, 
I wouldn't say it's a perversion. It's just it's just missing everything about what faith actually is. So, right. so he sees this story as offering an opportunity to find a corrective to that. Uh, so he's not advocating you, it. Right, right. So how do you sort of interrogate his interpretation? How do you, um, because it seems in a way that that the the how modernity gives rise to the hegemony of the individual makes him identify in a way with Abraham, even as he is sort of repelled or, or feels odd terror and fascination toward Abraham, he nonetheless feels some kind of identification with him. What is your conclusion about his interpretation of, of the story of the binding of Isaac? Right. So he, um, so there are a number of things that he says that I find to be uh, partly surprising and partly problematic. Uh, so I think, you know, as I said, I think his writing's enthralling, but I, I do think it falls short, not so much as a portrait of a religious person, but as an interpretation of the story of the Binding of Isaac. Mm-hmm. So a couple of things that, that sort of strike me. So first of all, the story of the Binding of Isaac, which, you know, maybe we should have provided a brief summary of, but I, I guess it's famous enough that we don't have to. Uh, really has two divine commands in it. So the first one is where God comes to Abraham, apparently in a dream, and says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go offer him as a burnt offering somewhere. The second one uh, is where the angel comes down and says, don't kill him. Now, Kierkegaard entirely ignores the second part. In other words, for Kierkegaard, it's like, it's almost accidental that Isaac is alive at the end of the chapter. Uh-huh. And I think that's a real problem, uh, like a textual problem. I think as, as an interpreter, just as a reader of a text, we should have to account for the fact that actually Abraham does not carry out this sacrifice and is told not to. So I think, you know, just as a, as a reader, I think it's, it's sort of a poor interpretation or incomplete interpretation uh, to stop and just focus on the first part of the story. Um, it also ignores some... It, well, let me say, it, it ignores like a close reading of a text in general. So there's all sorts of like really fascinating literary observations that people have been making for centuries, even millennia about it, that uh, that Kierkegaard just like, he doesn't talk about. Like he's really just interested in this one question. Like what does it mean to be commanded to offer your son as a sacrifice? And that's apparently the teleological suspension of the ethical, suspending ethics for the sake of faith. I think it just doesn't do justice to the story. The story is much richer than that, actually, despite it being so brief. On the philosophical side, one of the things that like sort of terrified me, and again, this is where sociology might have been useful. I just mm-hmm. you know sort of think more philosophically than sociologically. But um, it seems to me that there was no philosophical room, like no daylight between Kierkegaard's Abraham, who is willing to uh, put aside ethics and say, look, you know, I know it's wrong. I know it's murder to kill my innocent child, but I'm going to do it anyway for the sake of God. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is again, like early 2010s. So I'm, uh, or yeah, 2013, 14, 15, I'm thinking like, well, we literally have people, you know, unfortunately, Jews and Christians and Muslims who have uh, done things that I suspect they would concede are unethical but are violent and required by faith. And that could be, you know, um, Baruch Goldstein going into a mosque in Hebron and mowing down 29 
worshippers or an ISIS fighter in the desert beheading someone uh, or you know, a, a radical in New Zealand going into a mosque and, and opening fire. But like, un unfortunately, there are lots of examples. But the point is, Kierkegaard's reading actually terrifies me because then I think we actually don't have an answer to that person who says yes. like, well, yes. I'm an ethical person, but I'm sorry, I have to do this. And if we're willing to accept that Abraham was was had to do this, then I don't know if, if we have an answer other than saying like, no, no, your faith is wrong. My faith is right, which is obviously like a worthless argument, <laughs> in, right. um, not just pragmatically, but, you know, like philosophically. So um, and, and then sorry to interrupt you, but one other thing that uh, you bring up, which I think is really important, is that most commentary dwells on the sort of inscrutable motives of God, the laconic reaction and motions of Abraham. But few commentators, and I think Kierkegaard is included in this, as you note, view the incident, the narrative of the binding of Isaac through the eyes of Isaac who after all is the intended victim of the sacrifice. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so that's actually a great point. So again, there's sort of a literary point and I think a philosophical conceptual point. So on, on the literary level, um, I think it's clear that the star of the show is Abraham. It says right. so at the beginning, you right. know, um, after these things, God tested Abraham. Abraham's the one who gets the reward. Um, so it's not unreasonable to make Abraham the center of, someone's thinking about the story. I think what is unreasonable is to entirely ignore Isaac like from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. um, and that is what Kierkegaard does. I mean, Kierkegaard is, is clear. And I think some of his later, um, I don't say interpreters, but people, sort of theologians who have channeled Kierkegaard, have said this even sort of more shockingly clear. Um, I've said things like, well, Abraham had to be alone on the mountaintop. He had to abandon all um, all connection with humanity to just be alone with God. And you're like, no, no, but he's not alone on the mountaintop. <laughs> you know, right. as you just said, David, like th there's another person with him who's actually about to die. That's right. <laughs> so, so it seems like terribly unethical to just ignore that blithely and be like, oh, this is a story of Abraham. And like, look at Abraham as a person of faith. And like, okay, like we might also want to look at Abraham as a person of faith, but we should at least pay attention to the person who is about to die for Abraham's faith on that reading. Agreed. Uh, and that, and I should say that that part um, is not so much um, like good or bad, but I do think there's also a, a Jewish Christian um, aspect to this, to this reading. And, and like, I'm going to concede up front that, you know, trading and like big generalities about religious traditions that have been going on for thousands of years is like never going to work <laughs> um, entirely. <laughs> but, but I, but I don't think it's unfair to say that this sort of um, valorization of the ideal religious figure being alone on the mountaintop with God finds a much more ready home in Christian thought than in Jewish thought. Interesting. Uh, and, you know, it's true for Jesus, um, obviously. Um, it's true also though, I, you know, when Jesus says, um, if you want to be my disciple, you have to you know, spurn your parents and wife and sisters and brothers and children. And, you know, you, you can't have human relationships if you want to be my disciple. Um, and then it's been true in I, Protestantism sort of complicates it. But, mm -hmm. yes. uh, but the ideal of the, the monk or the nun, you know, not married to another human being because they're married to Christ yeah. um, is 
has often been the Christian ideal. Whereas Jewish tradition has actually always assumed that like, not, I don't want to pretend that like every Jewish uh, male religious figure was supposed to be a wonderful family person. Like that's obviously uh, not true empirically or and doesn't reflect text, but, uh, but actually like just the bare sense of sexuality and marriage was absolutely part of the sort of normal religious ideal uh, in Jewish tradition. And, um, and this notion that like, you know, Abraham's pinnacle of faith experience is to abandon all human relationships and be alone with God, uh, as inspiring as it sometimes sounds to me, is I think finds more of a home in Christian thought than in Jewish thought. That, that shouldn't be surprising. I mean, Kierkegaard's a great, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. great Lutheran. Yeah. But. Um, you also focus in your book on two remarkable and very different Jewish philosopher theologians whom Kierkegaard profoundly influences. And those would be Yeshahu Leibovitz and Joseph Soloveitchik. How can you talk a little bit about how their readings of the Akedah are influenced by Kierkegaard and where they depart from him? Yeah, I, I think I would say it as follows. They sort of take this idea that Kierkegaard propounds, that there is a time where we, which we can imagine where faith, which is personal, and ethics, which are universal, clash. And Kierkegaard yeah. says, if we don't want to condemn Abraham to hell as a murderer, we need to concede that sometimes faith can uh, suspend ethics. And these two thinkers basically take that in different ways. And, and Soloveitchik in a much more like rich and complex way and Leibovitch in a much more simplistic and I think unsatisfying way, but uh, maybe it makes it more, uh, uh, it makes it easier to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, and says like, yeah, that's really good. That's very, very important. And then they expand it in a couple of ways. They say, first of all, when we, when we say faith, we don't necessarily mean faith, because, of course, that's the way Kierkegaard talks. He's a good Protestant. We, being Jewish, uh, are not going to talk about faith primarily, but more in terms of religious law, a halakha, which mm -hmm. dictates the way we live our life. So implicitly sort of translating Kierkegaard into Jewish terms, you get, uh, you get the argument that there may be times that religious law conflicts with ethics, and the Akedah teaches that religious law has to take precedence over ethics um, in those times. Mm -hmm. And then the second massive expansion is to say that this is not, as I think Kierkegaard did think, just this sort of one-time, sui generis, unprecedented and, uh, and never repeated story, but that this is actually the template for like what it means to live a religious life in the modern world. Right. That every religious person actually is going to live in tension between their own personal uh, obligations to their faith slash religion um, on the one hand and their obligations to general universal societal ethics on the other hand. And the Akedah teaches that religion takes precedence. And that is like such a massive expansion that mm -hmm. I'm not sure that Kierkegaard would even recognize himself anymore. Right. But it's clear in both of them that they are reading Kierkegaard and then sort of going through this process of translating and uh, generalizing from him. <laughs> yeah, I guess they um, they wind up in a place that I feel like is so pernicious <laughs> that yeah. um, that I think you know Kierkegaard might actually be like, whoa, 
like I, I don't know what happened here. Slow like, down, not... gentlemen. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. But uh, but Leibovich, you know, who again is, is is more simplistic and therefore sort of easier to tackle, he winds up actually saying that if anyone anyone thinks that they uh, are a religious person, but thinks that they're a religious person because religion makes them a better person. And that, he says, is not actually religion at all. That's idolatry. Because religion and ethics are two like totally autonomous domains. And if you confuse the two, he thinks, you're not actually religious at all. You're just worshiping your own moral intuitions and putting the sort of uh, uh, veneer of religion on top of that and saying like, oh, I, I, I fear God. See, I'm a good person. And he's like, you don't fear God, you just fear your own moral intuitions. Which so, to him is a kind of idol worship. Exactly, exactly. The idolatry there is not that it's not good to be a good person, like you should be a good person, no. but don't pretend that you're worshiping God. Just admit that you just want to be a good person. Right. So, you know, his uh, his reading is pretty severe in that regard. And Soloveitchik, you know, Soloveitchik talks uh, a little bit, uh, his reading, I, I agree with you, is much more complex. And he talks about, uh, among other aspects of the, of the complexity of the story, he talks about the absurdity of faith and about how, in his view, the, there is no paradox in Abraham's actions to go through with God's incomprehensible, unfathomable command because he kill, because in, in Soloveitchik's view, Abraham kills Isaac in his heart immediately. Right. So that when the command comes, Isaac's already dead. The rest is, um, in, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing for effect, is a mere formality. Right. Uh, but can you talk about how that creates, uh, you know, where he diverges from Kierkegaard and how his view really uh, reveals the complexity and the halachic demands embedded in the Akedah? Yeah, so it's true. I mean, he... I suppose part of what makes him a little bit harder to tackle is that he doesn't doesn't write biblical commentaries. I and mean, Levitch didn't either, but he wrote essays that were actually about uh, Abraham. Yes. Salvatic has written a lot, but he wrote a lot. He published very little in his own lifetime. And this is published, uh, the writing that I'm referring to is published very posthumously, like only about 12 years ago. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to pretend to be a scholar of Soloveitchik's thought. I tried to read what I could, you know, uh, about, I'd, I'd read earlier, of course, but I, I tried to like, you know, fill in the, the gaps um, and mm-hmm. researching for this book. But I, I actually am, am not sure um, that we, we like community of people who try to interpret Soloveitchik from a, a scholarly philosophical perspective have yet figured out exactly how to do so methodologically because these mm-hmm. unpublished writings, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why people don't publish things. Um, I, I had always heard like, oh, he was such a perfectionist. He never, uh, he was never willing to publish things. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that's to some extent true. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you read some of the posthumous writings, which are coming out, you know, at a, at a really quick rate, actually, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and quicker than I could read, um, do I think you do find that that a lot of what he's saying are unpolished philosophically. Like they're not they're not complete thoughts. I don't mean that literarily. Like they can be you know sixty page essays, but there's all sorts of like tensions within them, or I don't want to say quite contradictions, but but clearly uh, open lines of thought that are not resolved. And I suspect 
and you know, I, I didn't, I never uh, encountered him personally. Uh, I'd be teaching the same uh, institution that he taught in, mm-hmm. and his his influence looms very large in the institution as sort of a figure. Yeah. But um, we we were never there. I uh, and I got to the campus, I think within a decade of his death, but he was mm-hmm. you know, obviously not there anymore. Uh, but he, um, I, I do suspect that actually he was he was actually trying to work things out. Like he really thought at the beginning of his philosophical work, you know, back in the 1930s, that he could articulate a philosophy of Judaism that would have halakha in the center and would be like an authentically modern philosophy and yet at the same time authentically from the traditional sources. Yeah. And you see him struggling towards that in a bunch of different essays, but I think he probably just realized that like, it wasn't there. Like it wasn't, it wasn't all ready. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of his essays go in certain directions and they sort of turn back. Uh, another essay might pick up the same line of thought, even have like the whole, you know, a couple of pages that are repeated. So obviously he had decided to incorporate it somewhere else, but then that also sort of tails off at, at a certain point. Sometimes he says like, I'm just going to interpret this story line by line, but you know, I, so I, I think methodologically it's actually really hard to interpret Soloveitchik. That's <laughs> yeah. So I, I tried yeah. to do the best I could with what we have in writing but I'm actually skeptical that what we have in writing um, can be interpreted without like a lot of, of uh, context. Like, oh, this is what he's working on in the 1940s. This is what he's doing in the 60s. This is what he's yeah. doing in the 70s. Uh, so I think that's, I sort of put that as a big caveat. I, I sort of, I, I basically ignored that in the book because I felt like, well, I can't, I can't like have now a, a new methodological excursus into like how to read Soloveitchik and no, but it's it's impossible to ignore him precisely because he is uniquely situated as a as a classically trained scholar in continental philosophy and as an Orthodox Jew, uh, comprehensively schooled in halakha. So it makes right. it really a unique figure, able in some ways to uniquely interpret. Abraham, both from traditional and philosophical perspectives, which may be part of the reason that he's, he struggles with the text so much, because it exists on both those levels, as well as others. Right, uh, I think that's very well said. And so I, 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 I do take issue, I'll just say quickly, like, I do yes. take issue uh, in the book with some interpreters of Soloveitchik who have said, uh, this whole like existentialist stuff, like that's just window dressing for him. Like he's really basically just articulating Jewish philosophy traditionally. Um, but yeah, like he was exposed to philosophy. So he like uses that term, that was terminology. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like actually absurd. <laughs> because, yeah. yeah. You know, traditionally trained rabbinic thinkers have read the same text that he's read and not gone anywhere near the directions that he went to. That's right. So, right. you know, I think clearly like look, he went, he has a PhD in philosophy. Uh, from Berlin, like it's, it wasn't like a trivial part of his his uh, intellectual uh, uh, shaping. So correct, right? I want to because you do do philo- philological work. I re- I want to ask you um, about the Akedah, sort of from a text critical perspective, just briefly. You know, uh, one book that was very influential in in my work and is looms behind any uh, commentary on the Akedah is Shalom Spiegel's The Last Trial. And among others, he speculated um, in a very erudite way, obviously, but it's still speculation that we have an incomplete version of an original story or a combination of versions of the original story 
And I wonder how you view the Akedah in a way that can get beyond our biases as modern Western readers who, who, who assume without even really necessarily realizing that we assume it, that any work that we read has a straight narrative line that is the comprehensive composition of one author who is trying to tell us a particular thing, is how much of the problem caused by the Akedah, in your view, is the result of different strata of composition and redaction and different polemical or apologetic views as to what is trying to be said. I think you actually formulated that perfectly. The, you know, there are different questions you could ask about a text. So the text is, is complex. It's conceptually complex, uh, um, especially, and it's literarily complex to some extent. Uh, there's, you know, speeches that start and then seem to start again and things of that sort. Um, in, in this book, so my home is biblical studies, mm-hmm. but in this book, I'm sort of interested in the way the text has meant over the centuries. Um, I do think, and I try to argue, I mean, this is something that I, I don't think I was that conscious of when I started this project, but I've become more conscious of what I was trying to do, that the interpretive history of a text is not just important in and of itself. And what I'm about to say, I don't mean a sort of a, a postmodern sense that there is no meaning to the text, but that in a very modern sense, the interpretive history of a text can show us things about the text itself that I might have missed reading it on its own. So that the interpretive history can actually be really informative as to the meaning of the text in its own context. Yes. I don't want to take that blindly, like, oh, whatever people said is right, but it could be really useful. So in this case, the text is complicated. And, and as you said, Spiegel and, and others sort of see attention at the end of a story. And, and some people posit that there was an original version of a story where Abraham did sacrifice Isaac. Mm-hmm. And then some other author, editor um, didn't like that, maybe wanted to bring it in line with uh, biblical laws forbidding child sacrifice, or maybe motivated by something else. Maybe they need to have Isaac actually alive for narrative logic in the right. next chapter or right. two chapters. Um, but uh, for whatever reason, an editor uh, added a section that like literally a day ex machina that saves Isaac, right? I mean, mm-hmm, there's a, mm-hmm. uh, just like, okay, so you know what? Let's have an angel save him at the end. Right. Um, and so like on the textual side, you know, I'm not, I'm not all that convinced by the arguments in this particular chapter, the, the names of God, which are not the crux of the argument, but they sort of cut across the section. So it's, uh, it gets, you know, that, that doesn't help the textual argument here, but much more, like at some point I realized that much more important than all this is that, modern critics are accurately pointing out that the story sort of jerks back and forth conceptually. And that's what they're reacting to by saying, oh, it must have been two authors. And what I was so excited about was that philosophical interpreters had also tried to explain that the text jerks back and forth conceptually, but not in their view because there were multiple authors, but because this issue actually is complicated and there are arguments on both sides of it. So interesting. So like, yes, God does want Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. No, God doesn't want Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. That inconsistency is not because different authors can't agree, but because God actually is complicated, so to speak. Like, I don't, I don't know what that would mean. I don't mean to say this as a statement of fact, but like as a literary portrayal. Um, 
that uh, that in fact the whole question of child sacrifice. There are good arguments for child sacrifice, and then there are good, luckily even better arguments against child sacrifice. But that the text is essentially saying like these are both true at the end of the day. I mean, so I think that's a really line. remarkable part of your book. Um, it, it's an it's an argument that is that I have never seen before, but that is very compelling that God does want the sacrifice of Isaac, but that God does more desire that Abraham not sacrifice Isaac. Am I getting that right? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I, I, <laughs> I keep, you know, despite having, yeah, I guess, written it a few years ago and uh, lived with it now for a few years, I still, I still struggle with like the, not a theological question, like, like is this acceptable, but like, you know, how does this work in terms of, of uh, religious thought? But it, yes, that's exactly exactly right um, in terms of, of what I argue. It's a fascinating uh, it's a fascinating argument because it suggests that um, that different aspects of God, which on one level can be can be signified by the different names of God used in the narrative uh, itself, the four letter name of God and then uh, Elohim, but it's it's fascinating that what would appear to be contradictions from a very human perspective, perspective would be or could be interpreted as different aspects of a holistic divine being, that what appears contradictory to us are simply different aspects of the divine personality that appear to us to be at odds with each other, but may not be from an entirely different ontological perspective. Is that possible? Well, I, I mean, I, <laughs> I sort of concede up front that I I know nothing about God. So I'm not, uh, mm-hmm. uh, not going to try to pretend that, like, I know what's possible or what's impossible. I, I'll say that uh, I fully agree with your formulation. And I love the phrase you use, the divine personality, because we're all cognizant of the experience in our own lives of having conflicting desires for something, you know, I, uh, that's right. I, 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 in the book, I use a trivial example because the editor didn't like my more extreme example, (laughs) but (laughs) but my more extreme example, which I think is actually better, a better fit for, um, for this question about child sacrifice is, is someone who's contemplating an extramarital affair who Uh might be driven by like the most powerful passions known to humankind. Right. And yet might resist it because there are even stronger arguments that might be less passionate, but might be more important, compelling um, to resist. You know, um, the existing relationships, uh, fidelity, family, whatever it may be. Um, and I can sort of, I, I sort of think of God in the same way with regard to child sacrifice. There are like passionate reasons why God would like child sacrifice. It's mm-hmm. it's a incredibly powerful expression of devotion and i in the book i try to explain like why it's qualitatively more uh an expression of devotion than 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 like sheep sacrifice or something yes Yes. um but um but then they're even more important you know again like less burning but more important uh factors that lead god to say like actually i don't want it though Uh like as much as i would like to uh see it i don't want it Uh, and you know my argument in the book is that that's the sanctity of isaac's life is actually what makes it just unfathomable? Uh, it's you know it's, it's right. great. I, I love the idea of you sacrificing your child, but 
But since that would come at the expense of the actual life of another human being who is independently sacred, autonomous, whatever word, I, I try to think use a word that's not like culturally uh, situated in the modern West, but it's hard. Right. Um, uh, so that's sort of why at the end of the day, God says like, actually don't like, don't extend your hand to the boy. Like just don't touch him because I like the idea can't carry through with it. But that picture of God, like I've gotten some responses, you know, um, published online and, and some, uh, some letters have said like, you know, you talk about God, like, uh, like as if God's a human being, but like, that's of course blasphemy. I'm like, well, I don't know. Like, again, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't really know. But at the same time, like that's the way the Bible describes God all the time. That's right. As, you know, growing and learning and regretting and uh, loving and hating and so on. So I don't know. Maybe it's all a metaphor. I don't really know. But um, but I think it's it's at least of a piece with the rest of the biblical story. So this sort yeah. of complicated divine will doesn't seem like a problem as a uh, interpretation of this story either. Right. And I appreciate your caution that, you know, that you don't want to say anything about what God is because of the unknowability of God. And that brings me uh, to one of the last things, unfortunately, that we have time to talk about, which is the master of negative theology, the the early medieval commentator Maimonides. And you talk about his view of the binding of Isaac and the nature of the trial that Abraham undergoes. Can you tell us about his view of the Akedan, what kind of influence he has on later commentators and on you. Sure. So Maimonides is also a tough thinker to interpret, but in his case, it's because he intentionally didn't say what he wants to say. Um, And he tells us at the beginning of his Guide to the Perplex that this is only for initiates. And so if you're not initiated, you're not going to get a lot of this. I'm going to contradict myself. I'm going to hide the truth. And if you don't get it, that's probably because you shouldn't get it. Right. So um, I always like, that always scares me because <laughs> I have no particular reason to think that I'm an initiate here. Right. Um, so, you know, I guess with that caveat, um, he actually tackles the story a couple of times, one time explicitly. And he talks about like, what is the purpose of a trial, which bothered the medieval philosophers a lot? Like, why would God test someone? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, typically we think of tests as being a way of finding something out, which I'll say parenthetically is like sort of the clear, straightforward meaning of this text also, because it says, like later on in the text, God says, now I know that you fear God. So it seems right. like actually explicit that God learned something in this text. But, you know, the medieval philosophers were uh, opposed to that implicitly. So that was off the table. So what's the point of a trial? Um, and he argues that it's actually for uh, the benefit of, of observers, um, that other people will now see that there's actually no limit on what might be required as an expression of the love of God. Um, mm-hmm. So even even up to and including the sacrifice of one's own child. So that's that's really fascinating. And people have, you know, because of his view and a couple others, but people have understood him to, to mean that, well, if that's true, you know, the, the there's no physical audience in the story. No one's actually there. So the audience for the story, the the, the target audience for this lesson are actually the literary audience and others the readers. <laughs> it's me and you and everyone else yeah. who's read the story. Um, and um, there's actually a comment by one of his, uh, not direct students, but uh, but the next century 
uh, biblical commentator David Kimchi, who lived in Provence, but was you know, very influenced by Maimonides, both philosophically and interpretively. And Kimchi writes in his commentary, he says, like, yeah, it's not for the people, you know, back in, well, he doesn't say the Middle Bronze Age, but it's not for the people in the Middle Bronze Age. It's for, it's for the Jews, it's for the Christians, it's for the Muslims in the 13th century who all read the story and take it seriously. They all learn from the story. Mm-hmm. So a number of people have said, well, that's really interesting and really compelling. And of course, leads to the question of whether it ever had to happen in real life. Because why torture Abraham and Isaac if all you want to do is teach people 2,000 years later a lesson? So people have wondered, like, this is, you know, is Maimonides really saying covertly that this whole thing was a dream? That this story is being told, but never actually really happened. Right. Um, you know, whether Maimonides himself thought so or not is at best uncertain. But uh, but there were certainly some some medieval Jewish thinkers who took him to mean that and said, like, yeah, that's the point. I mean, this, this story never happened. If you had been there in the land of Moriah, wherever that is, uh, 4,000 years ago, uh, you never would have seen this. Like, that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you would have had to have been in Abraham's head. Um, but the point that that I wind up building in Maimonides, on in Maimonides' thought is actually a different point, which gets a little technical about m- medieval theories of, of prophecy, uh, which is <laughs> another realm that I'll profess no understanding of. Right. Uh, but Maimonides does see this as a prophetic <laughs> dream, right? Which is a very elevated form of prophecy. And he's he's painting Abraham, understandably, as a prophet. as And this is yes. an elevated form of prophecy. Right, exactly. And the key point that I th- found so fascinating was that he says, of these two revelations that we talked about earlier, the first command to offer Isaac as a sacrifice and the second command to not offer Isaac as a sacrifice, he says the second one is a higher level command, which sort of the way he understands it and the way I articulate it here means that at that point in the story, Abraham actually now better understands what God wants from him. In other words, he had earlier understood God accurately, but only partially. And now he understands him more fully. Um, so, so this I take to be like sort of this uh, opening for the approach that we were talking about a few minutes ago, that it's not inaccurate to say that God wanted Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. That's just not the end of the story. God right. wants that, but then even more doesn't want that. Right. Now, for Maimonides, this is a particularly ironic thing to say, because Maimonides thinks that God is, you know, a unity um, in like a metaphysical sense that cannot be divided. So to talk about like a, a sort of complex mind of God that's uh, struggling with different desires for Maimonides is actually pretty ironic. But I think that, you know, I think anyone who takes um, the biblical narrative seriously or, or even just tries to make sense of of the way God interacts with humanity in the Bible uh, has to wind up saying something along those lines. So, yes. yeah, that's where that's where Maimonides, I think, uh, provided a, an opening. Very interesting reading. I just wanted to ask about the voices that sort of don't make it into the story that Midrash deals with and that other religious traditions deal with. For example, in late, later Islamic scholarship, although the Quran is not, uh, as I recall, definitive on this, eventually Islamic scholarship um, uh, lands on the interpretation that it is Ishmael, not Isaac, who goes through the binding. And of course, in, in Midrash, uh, the rabbis spend considerable time and energy wondering about 
the connection between the binding of Isaac and the beginning of the very next parsha, which is the death of Sarah, uh, reaching the conclusion through exegesis that Sarah hears about what's happened and dies. What sort of ethical message comes to us in the interstices and the and the gaps and the seams of the text about people who have no say in the matter of the devotion, the religious devotion of others? Right. Yeah, that's that's really well powerfully said. Um, oh, so Isaac, I think, might even be in that category, the, the way you formulated it at the end there as well. But we can put him aside. Um, Ishmael was banished in the previous chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's actually some really striking parallels between the banishment of Ishmael and the near sacrifice of Isaac. So that that's sort of an empirical claim. Like, I mean, it's clearly true. The same words are used. The narrative sort of repeats itself. It's like really fascinating. Yeah. The question is, what are the implications of that? Like that, mm-hmm. I'm actually not sure. Um, you know, I've seen the suggestion that the Akedah could have been a punishment for uh, Abraham's banishment of Ishmael. Interesting. Um, yeah, which I thought was really fascinating. Um, it could be that the two of them had to go together. They're sort of a, a joint activity in uh, getting Abraham to divest himself of any hope in the future. So, uh, so wow. serially, he has to get rid of Ishmael and get rid of Isaac and right. one after another. Um, in which case, we have to at least wonder why one has to be violent and one has to be just banishment. But um, that's you know something to think about. Next book. Uh, it's also really interesting because Abraham and Isaac are never together in the rest of the biblical narrative. Like that's after right. this, like they never they never talk. They're never physically in the same place. But Isaac. Down in chapter 24, I think, is is placed, you know, we're told that he just came from the place Be'er Lachai Ro'i. And that's actually the place where Ishmael is said to be earlier. So it may even be the case that like between the lines, we see that Abraham's banishment and near murder of his two sons it did in fact end his relationship with his sons drove them together. So they may have seen like their relationship is never addressed in the Bible, but they're actually placed in the same geographic location. And I wonder whether that actually, uh, you know, reflects something of the dynamic. Yeah. Uh, really interesting. I've even seen a, a modern uh, Midrashic interpretation, I believe. I, I can't remember the source, unfortunately, that Isaac returns to Be'er Lachai Roi because that's where Hagar is. And that when Abraham marries again at the end of chapter 22, it is because Isaac has made peace with her and made a shidduch, and that's actually <laughs> her that Abraham <laughs> marries at the end of, uh, of, wow. of Genesis 22. I know. Wow. The story makes wow. so many readings possible. It does. But, it does. But actually, wonder, let me, let me yeah. say about Sarah, though, because Sarah is actually yeah. I think, the most fascinating. I've, I, in the book, I struggle with this a bit, but I've, I've been sort of working on it more afterwards, and I'm not sure where it goes. Uh, so Sarah is sort of very famously just absent from the story entirely. Correct. Uh, just not there. And it's pretty shocking. I mean, it's pretty shocking in terms of uh, the, the literary text. I mean, she's been alongside throughout. Um, she's never been a star, to be clear. Like, I don't, I don't want to pretend that it's more feminist than it than it is. Right. Um, but also substantively, like, how could Abraham, like, this is her son. Like, what, you know, how could you do that morally, ethically, um, relig- uh, relationally? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are like these really fascinating texts. So the, the first part of the book, which um, 
I think more has in common with your book, and maybe another time we could talk more about the the way that the, the story resonated with readers over this over the millennia. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, I talk about a couple of Syriac poems from like the sixth, seventh century that actually imagine dialogues between Abraham and Sarah at the beginning of the story. So Abraham in these in these poems, Abraham gets this message, you know, go offer your son as a sacrifice, and Sarah sees him like taking Isaac, sharpening a knife, collecting wood, and it's different different poems go in different directions. But she says something like, you know, what are you doing? And he says, oh, nothing. You know, I'm just going off for a trip with our son. In one poem, she says, ah, 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 I'm terrified of this. I know that you are so crazy in love with God that you would even slaughter our son for him. So I'm not letting you go with him alone. In some cases, she says things like. I have a sense that you're going to offer him as a sacrifice. Let me come. I also want to do this. So like she's she's just as pious as Abraham in that regard. Right. Yeah. Um, but then I think, you know, the most interesting ones are the ones where she says, no, you don't get it. Like you didn't suffer for Isaac the way I did. Do you know how many nights I was up uh, fasting and crying and praying? Do you know how painful it was to give birth to him? Like For you, you're like, oh, God gave him. God took him away. But no. I worked for him. I suffered for him. You can't just take him away. It's not about you. It's about me as well. And I think that's like fascinating. And I wonder whether that's, yeah, it is really amazing. I wonder whether it's actually part of like almost why Sarah can't be in the story. Because if Sarah was in the story, we'd have to have actually a much more complicated, like, so I'm, I'm arguing that, you know, it's, it's not enough to talk about God and Abraham. You have to talk about Isaac. Like what if you have to talk about God, Abraham, Isaac, and Sarah, and everyone has their own vantage point. Everyone has different arguments for like whether you should or shouldn't do this. So this becomes a totally different kind of story, much more complicated and rich, I think, in terms of the not just emotional, but religious and personal yes. argument. But yes. um, but also like it can't just be this bare bones 19 verse story anymore. So I actually wonder whether the narrator just like, ah, I can't let Sarah in here. Right. <laughs> just, if too many people get in, then then, <laughs> then we, we can't think about the complexities of the relationship between the human being and the divine. You know, right. right. Uh, you at the end of the book, you sort of distill an ethical teaching that we're to take from the Akedah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, sure. So, I mean, my argument at the end is basically that um, once you are attuned to Isaac's presence there and emphasize the fact that God doesn't let him die at the end of the story, um, that we can emerge with a, a pretty simple teaching. I, I, you know, sometimes I'm just like, this is the tritest thing in the world. Like, why am I even <laughs> saying this? Um, but like, I don't know, but the, maybe it's worth saying anyway, that in religious life, uh, if we have a religious, or we think we have a religious obligation that winds up hurting someone else, then there's probably something wrong there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that one person's piety can't come through the harm to another person. So I think that pretty much follows from, you know, just recognizing each person's independence uh, in religious in the religious realm. Like, if I'm going to be pious, that should be about me. It shouldn't be about me uh, advancing in my piety by stepping on other people or by literally killing other people. Right. So this is sort of how I I wind up with like, oh, you know, no, you you're not allowed to fly planes into the World Trade Center. That's I'll tell true. you why. I'll tell you why. Because if you think that your religion mandates this, then this story, far from saying like, oh, it's okay to be a religious zealot, is actually teaching you like, I get why you want to be a religious zealot, but at the end of the day, God will stay your hand. 
Now, of course, God will not stay your hand if you try to fly a plane into the World Trade Center. Um, but this story was meant to tell you that, like, that's not what God actually wants at the end of the day. Right. And it is it's, very um, redolent, as you note, of Buber and Levinas, that we yeah. have to deeply recognize the other. Yes, exactly. I mean, Levinas is just so powerful in this. I, you know, there's a, a reading in, in, in light of Levinas of the story of the Akedah that basically says the angel, the messenger that tells Abraham not to kill Isaac is not an angel who comes down from heaven. It's just Isaac. When Abraham <laughs> looks at Isaac's face and he says, oh, you're another person. You're an, you know, capital O, other. Yeah. I, of course, have no right to do violence to you. That's the beginning of ethics and the end of the command to offer child sacrifice, because how could that possibly live? Right, right. My last question for you, Professor Kohler, is what will your next project be? What are you working on now? Um, I'm actually, so for a few years, I've actually been working on the history of the alphabet, wow. which uh, I don't think has anything to do with this project at all. Um, uh -huh. Must be kind of a relief, actually. Uh, <laughs> so it is. It's actually interesting. Um, you know, the burden of like uh, religious violence is off my shoulders now. Yes, right. But um, it's actually fascinating. It, it's really fascinating. I mean, it's it's sort of you know come to it a little bit from the Semitic side and mm -hmm. and language, but it's also just amazing because you can actually watch ideas traveling like across the Arabian Peninsula. Um, along with like the beginning of the incense trade. And you're like, oh, it's not just wow. incense. Like they're talking to each other. They're teaching each other. It's going across the Mediterranean. Like it's it's actually fascinating watching ideas move. And this, I, I've just been enthralled with it because uh, it turns out to like open up these, these questions and these avenues on cultural history and connections and people's like actual interactions in the ancient world. So I'm really enjoying it. Very it, uh, fascinating. I don't think it has anything to do with this project. Well, that's that's uh, after delving deeply into the Akedah, I can attest to the fact that one needs to turn one <laughs> in another direction. Right. Uh, yeah. I want to thank you so much for joining me today. I've really enjoyed our discussion. I had a great time. Thank you so much for the opportunity. My guest today has been Aaron Kohler, a professor in the Department of Jewish Studies at Yeshiva College, and we've been talking about his book, Unbinding Isaac, The Significance of the Akedah for Modern Jewish Thought, published this year, 2020, by the Jewish Publication Society. Professor Kohler, thank you again for being here today. Thank you again, David. It was great.